Good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Genesis 38. Let's pray while we're getting there. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Thank you that we're able to get together and worship um, through these extraordinary times and through these interesting ways. We pray that as we study your word, um, as we go chapter by chapter, even the tough ones, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We know that there's a purpose and a reason for every single word that you wrote down for us to read. And we're excited to have and receive everything you have for us in this chapter. So Lord, I pray that you bless the folks watching and those who will be watching later, not live. And um, for us right here in this room, who have spent some time to get this all together, I pray that it would be a fruitful time for us as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week, Joseph was sold into slavery. His brothers were so disgusted with him, so um, jealous, so bitter about his being the favorite of his dad that uh, they put him in a pit with the intent of leaving him there, and they thought, well, why would we do that? Why wouldn't we make some money off of him? And so they sold him to some slave traders as they passed by, and he is now on his way to Egypt. Now, we pick up an interesting chapter here in 38. It seems out of place in the sense that this is the only chapter where we get any clue as to what's going on back at Jacob's household. Because for the next few chapters, we're going to be following Joseph. But this one chapter stands out as we see a little story about Judah. And there's only one reason for it. Um, uh, there's a lot to learn from it, of course. But God puts this in here on purpose for almost the last two verses only. So we understand something. And I don't want to spoil the surprise, so stand by for the last two verses. It's a story of Judah and Tamar, Judah being one of the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, and Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law. And so we'll get started here. It came to pass at that time in verse 1 of chapter 38 that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was uh, at Chizba, or Chizib, Chizib, when she bore him. So just a little background for us at now Judah has three boys, three sons, and we need to know that for the story. Um, you don't need to know that for the test, but you do need to know that to understand the story. And uh, he's blessed. He left his brothers for a time um, to visit this friend Hira. He's going to visit him again at the end of the story here. Um, and while he was away, he found a wife in Canaan. She was a Canaanite woman. Not an ideal, obviously, but um, that's the wife that he chose. Judah and the boys... Uh, my guess is, are feeling a little lost right now. Dad, Jacob, won't be comforted. He has lost his favorite son, Joseph. As far as Jacob is concerned, Joseph is dead. He's been torn to pieces, and it was his fault. Jacob was the one who sent his son out to go check on the other brothers to see what they were doing. Why weren't they back? Where were they going? You know, things weren't right. So he sent his favorite, the one who had the coat of many colors, uh, the overseer, um, to go find out where they were, and he, he comes back dead, or at least he finds a bloody coat. 
and realizes that his son has been killed or believes his son has been killed. That's not what's happened, but that's what he thinks, and he won't be comforted. And so the brothers are kind of lost. They know it's their fault. Every time they see dad, every single day they see their father, he's downcast, mourning. He still has Benjamin. That's his second favorite. But uh, for the most part, he is just an uncomforted man. And uh, they've done it to him. And so Judah, they're all sort of wandering. And so Judah goes off and finds this Canaanite woman to marry. And she has these three boys, which is, which is the point of the story. Verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother." And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. I I warned you, this is one of those chapters that's a a little more difficult to teach and probably to hear. Um, God is very honest and very blunt um, about his people. And this is one of those stories. One of the things I picked up on here, and and we need to understand from this, is what's happening. Uh, First of all, God apparently thought Ur was so wicked that he didn't need to live anymore and took him out. Um, But Onan coming into his brother's wife, well, that's a different story. That's a law that hasn't been written yet. Remember, we're still in Genesis. Exodus hasn't taken place. Uh, Leviticus hasn't taken place. And so we've got to go all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, to figure out kind of what's happening here. And it's a law. Um, It's a practice now uh, before the law, but it becomes a law ratified. It says this, if, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside of the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband or of a husband's brother to her. So that's essentially what's happening. Right or wrong, I mean, it's wrong, it's, it's strange. That's what needs to happen. That's what uh, is, is, is taking place in this chapter. Um, honestly, as I was studying this chapter, and Aaron sent a funny text to me, because we've got great worship leaders here, and they read the text ahead of time, and they pray about what songs maybe God would have them sing, or uh, worship songs that they would put in the set that would have to maybe accentuate the the text. And he says, I'm not getting anything for this one. And no doubt in this text, what worship song do you write, you know, or or can you find? Um, So it is strange. It is an unusual situation. And, and, and Onan here is going in fulfilling, but not wanting to halfway, you know, Um, in, in almost a worse way in the sense that he gets the pleasure and satisfaction of the event of going into his brother's wife, but doesn't give her what she needs, which is a son, which is a child out of this. Um, He actually um, emits on the ground, it says, and so that that can't possibly happen. Spills his seed, I think the King James Version says. So a horrible situation. Now, this thing displeased the Lord, and he killed him also, it says. So that brings up another subject here. you know, God is full of grace and mercy, and, and we see in the Old Testament here, since there is no uh, Savior at this point, although God is still gracious and merciful, we see an interesting thing happen here. God is so displeased with these two boys that he takes them out. He kills them. 
Um, and it's just like that. And when we get to the New Testament, we think, well, this is a different kind of God, a kinder God, a, a more gentle God. And it's not. He, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we're going to read to you a section that, that I'm thankful this practice doesn't happen anymore because I'm not sure the churches would have anybody in them anymore. Um, and that's not a slam against you or, or, or anybody, just us as people. It's in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's a story of Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody was donating and giving to the church at this time uh, to, to help the poor and to help those that had less. So everything was in common. And, and, and that kind of produced a little competition in the church, it seemed like. And we pick up the story where Ananias and Sapphira, uh, verse 5, um, or verse 1, chapter 5 of Acts, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. We don't know what it is, probably land, who knows. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The rest of the story is his wife comes in after him, after they carry him out, and they ask her the same questions, and she lies also about the proceeds, and she dies. This is the only time you see anybody slain in the spirit in scriptures, and literally slain. So this kinder, gentler God in the New Testament apparently hasn't changed much from the Old Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I don't want to do a Bible study on that. What had happened was they were essentially making everybody believe they were giving all, but they weren't. They were keeping back a portion so that the competition, they would win. Look at us. We sold this big piece of property, this big piece of land, and gave it all. We've given it all, but they really didn't. Um, and Paul, Peter calls him on that, and he says, he says, it was yours. It was yours to begin with. Why lie about it? We didn't care if you gave a tenth or a fifth or none of it. It was all in your hands. But you saw fit to lie to the Holy Spirit about this, and they both died. And so um, it does happen in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Um, when, when, when God sees fit, you're done. Um, I'm not going to die one day sooner than when God wants me to, and I'm not going to die one day later than when God wants me to. When God calls me to be home with him, I'm going home, regardless of my plans. Now, I'll do my part. I'm not going to be jumping off buildings and, 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 and tempting him, you know. Um, but there's no way for me to thwart that, nor do I want to. I want to be in God's perfect timing. Um, this was God's perfect timing for Ur. And this is God's perfect timing for this Onan. They were not walking with the Lord. And they were not doing what was pleasing to God, and both these boys are now dead. God is um, watching out for Tamar. This is a, really the thrust of the whole story, the whole teaching tonight. God is watching out for this woman. And so, ladies, for those of you watching, I really want you to tune in. And guys, of course, I want you to pay attention because oftentimes it's by our hands, at our hands, that the women suffer around us. Um, and so take note of that. But ladies, I want you to see how God watches out for this woman. And I want you to see the point of this chapter. It really is for you. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, this is his daughter-in-law, 
Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Um, just a side note. So this little boy is too young to be married to this woman. But when he becomes of age, Judah is essentially promising her that this next boy, this next brother, will do what the other two didn't do, give her an heir, which is customary, what we're supposed to do, or what they're supposed to do at the time. Um, and so he promises them that. Verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted, and went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. So here he comes again. He's a, his wife has died. Judah's wife has died. With the, they gave him the three boys, the Canaanite woman, and he has now overcome his grief. It's, it's time, and he's going back up to see his buddy again, this same guy. Um, doesn't need to be going up there, but that's where he goes. And he's going to find himself getting into trouble here. Um, so he goes up and, and, and with Hira, uh, the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. She's been waiting a long time for this boy to grow up, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled by her father-in-law. She, as a woman, at this time, women did not have rights. They were property. They were uh, a side issue. They were not equal at all at this time. Um, and so she had no choice but to stay with her father. She couldn't hold property. She couldn't, she couldn't do anything but wait for some man to fulfill a promise that he said he was going to fulfill. Realizing that's not going to happen, she takes matters into her own hands. She takes some drastic measures, and she plants herself on the road as Judah's going to walk by here. Now, we don't know if it's intentional or not. She has taken off her widow's clothes. She's been wearing these widow's garments for a very long time, for this boy to grow up, years now, okay? Anyway... There she sits on the side of the road. Now, Judah walks by. When Judah saw her sitting on the side of the road without her widow's garment, with her face covered, he thought she was a harlot or a prostitute because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she doesn't wait around for the goat. <sighs> Tough. This is a difficult place. He is not doing what he's supposed to be doing by giving her the third brother. He probably had a nickname for this woman, the Black Widow. Every, every one of my boys that marries this woman or comes into this woman ends up dead. And I don't want to lose my third. That was the implication of, why don't you go live at your father's house, lest he die also, kind of thing. So she does what she's supposed to do. And she waits there. And uh, it's not happening. 
He's not going to bring this boy, and she knows it. So she takes matters into her own hands, dresses herself up as a prostitute, barters for a price, and then lets this happen. Horrible situation to be put in, but it is not her doing. This is his. This is Judah. Judah needs to own this. Now, Judah is going to give her an heir, and it's going to be his boy. Now, this ought not happen either. The law hasn't been written yet, but it will be written that a father and a and a, and a son are not to share the same wife ever. I mean, even if it's sequential, um, definitely not at the same time, but even if it's one after the other, no, it's not supposed to be like that. But it, regardless, that's what's happened. Um, she's conceived now. When women get put in a tough position, in the Old Testament especially, it is most of the time at the hands of other men. Uh, we I say we, it wasn't me, but the men in the olden days in those times had put such restrictions on women that they couldn't do anything to better their situation. They had to, given the circumstances and given the culture, had to wait for a man to give them what they need. There was no way for them to do it other than this. This was really the only vocation left to a woman that she could do on her own, basically. So here she stands, here she sits by the side of the road doing this, unmarried, a widow with no hope of an heir, no one to take care of her, no source of income, still living with her father, and she takes matters into her own hand. The daughters of Lot did the same thing. Another strange story. But again, uh, they had no options or they didn't think they had options. Here's the story. Genesis 19 We've already read it, 29 through 36. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah were all wiped out, fire and brimstone, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now, The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night, lest him uh, um, let us make, it, make uh, him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie down with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Now at the time, the law is not written yet. But still... Right? I mean, these there are no other men, the girls thought. There is no other way for us to... They took matters into their own hands. They were left vulnerable. They were left without protection. They were there figuring things out on their own. I, I, I fault them also. And yet, given the culture, they were, they were stuck, you know? And so we see the same thing happening with this Tamar. She's stuck. And so she took matters into her own hands, not what we had hoped, not what God had wanted, but God has still got his eye on her. God is still protecting her. Why did she take the signet ring? Why did she take the staff? Why did she leave with those things and not wait for the goat? Because it wasn't about the money. 
It wasn't about a goat. It wasn't about provision. It was about an heir that Judah was not going to give her. And so she took it. She did what she needed to do. So, verse 20, Then Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but she did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where's the harlot who was opened by the roadside? And they said, There is no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be ashamed. For I sent the young goat and have not found her. So I did my part, basically. I tried to pay her. She's gone. Let's just let her have the ring and the staff. I guess that's all she gets from me. She gets my pledge. Well, that's all she wanted. She wanted to keep that. Verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let us uh, let her be burned. That was his solution. Now, this girl, as far as he was concerned, was out of sight, out of mind. Had no intention of taking care of her, had no intention of giving her third son to him or to her. But when he hears about this, what a great opportunity to put this chapter in the rearview mirror. Let's just burn her. She's a harlot. Um, she's done some horrible, sinful thing. Let's get rid of her. He sees the opportunity to remove her. Let's burn her. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shalem, my son. And he never knew her again. So that was a ta-da moment. That was the gotcha moment. Bring her out to burn her. Really? Well, before you do that, could you please tell me whose ring this is? And these signet rings are kind of the ones you see on TV where they uh, write a letter and put some wax on it and put their imprint on it to let them know that it's official and it came from them. And so that's the ring she has, and it's Judah's. And everybody knows it, along with the cord and along with the staff. Those were all his. And he realizes what he's done. He realizes that he's sinned. He realizes that what she's done is more righteous than what he's done. You see, I should have done my duty and given my third son to her, but I didn't. And what she's done is far less a sin than what I've done. And so he says, please let her go. Let her go. And he knows it, but never went into her again. Now, I've mentioned this several times throughout the teaching, but the women just, they had no options back then. Things have changed quite a bit. Jesus is the great liberator. He is the one who came and set captives free in all, all ways and all shapes and all forms, all captives. We've been set free from our sin, for sure, but we've been set free from culture, cultural things that have kept us in, in bondage that are far from biblical culture, far from what God intended. God, God's intent was Genesis chapter 3 with the man and the woman becoming one flesh, one man, one woman, having kids and, and, and having a wonderful family, and that's it. Never were there supposed to be multiple wives, multiple husbands. All these things weren't supposed to take place. There wasn't supposed to be any death. And yet everything changed when we stepped in and ate of that fruit. And things got worse and worse. And so that was 
part of it. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, for sure, but he also came to get things right and settle things. In the book of Acts, the, 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 the cultures at the time were still like this, treating women like this. And Jesus came and absolutely revolutionized all of it, liberated them, set them free, made them equals. I'll give you the scripture, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a, an amazing thing that took place. The disciples and the women that came alongside of Jesus, the first four people to see that Jesus was risen from the dead just last Easter, we discussed it, were women. He gave them that privilege. Some of the ladies that would follow Jesus around uh, were demon-possessed at one point. One was a prostitute. Uh, just The woman at the well, that was an intentional encounter with Jesus. It's almost as if he sought them out. The woman with the issue of blood who was considered untouchable because of her issue with blood touched Jesus' garment and he says, it's okay, you've been made well. Breaking that culture, but you can't touch a rabbi with your issue of blood. You can't do that. Jesus says, of course she can. This is, how else is she going to get healed? I felt power go out of me, he said to her. Her faith made her well. He was liberating the whole time. It was an amazing thing to see. It's still happening. Now, man gets a hold of this liberation, and we try to remove God from it, and, and now women actually have gone so far the wrong way, believing that true liberation is the ability to kill your child at will. To have a child within you growing, and true liberated women can now slaughter them without any repercussions. It's my body, it's my choice. And that's just Satan twisting it again. We've gone from one extreme where men had complete control over it to now Satan says, fine, if you're going to go over there, let me twist it over here. Neither of those are of God. True liberation finds in, is found in Jesus Christ. He sets us free from the bondage of death, from sin. It has no sting anymore. has no power over us anymore because all of our sins are forgiven. So that's liberation. But also... He tells them, this story here with these brothers is actually one of, the, um, one of those crazy scenarios that they, they gave to Jesus. They said, Jesus, uh, you're a great teacher and everything. I've got a question for you. Suppose one man has a, a, a wife and then he dies and has no children and his brother and his brother and his brother until all seven have had her in heaven. Whose bride is she? And Jesus says, are you, are you so foolish? It's written. You know, he, he challenged him on that. And here's what his solution was. Don't you even know that you're neither given in marriage or are married in heaven? It's only here on earth we have that, that we have that marriage. When you get to heaven, there is no more male or female. There is no more. I mean, we will be male and female for sure. We know that. But there's no more marriage up there. It's, it's you're fine by yourself. You're fine by yourself. We're complete there. It's an amazing thing. There's liberation. Jesus is the great liberator. So thankful for what he's done. So thankful that he's come. And we need to understand this. We need to get this into our hearts and know this. Of course, there's roles to play. Of course, men have responsibilities and women have responsibilities. And God has laid those out like he would any good corporation or any good arrangement. We need to figure out who's doing what. 
But that doesn't mean that we go back to this in Genesis. We don't go back to, you're just going to have to wait over there. You're just going to have to do this over there. No, not at all. It's an amazing thing that's taken place, this liberation through Jesus. No Jews, no Greeks. You're either saved or you're unsaved. No male, no female. You're either saved or you're unsaved. There's no slave or free. You're either saved or you're unsaved. And that's the question that is the only question that matters tonight. Are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're a slave or free. It doesn't matter whether you're a Greek or you're a Jew. It doesn't make any difference. None of those things, all those cultural boundaries are gone. Are you born again? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because you have a problem, male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew. You have a problem with sin. Your sin has separated you from God. My sin has separated me from God. And I need a way to get that fixed. And God says there is only one way that I've made for that to be fixed. And that's my son is going to go to the cross and all of your sins are going to be nailed to the cross with him. Now he's going to die and he's going to rise again and I want you to rise with him. In other words, I want you to accept that atoning blood, his blood at the cross for your sin. There's no sacrifice you can do. There's no offering that you can give me. Because I've brought the sacrifice. I've brought the offering, God says. And it's my son, Jesus. And that is the sacrifice for the sin of the world. Which is what John the Baptist said to him. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is the only sacrifice that is accepted by God for your sins to be forgiven. Have you believed on Jesus? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Have you placed all your hope, all your eternity, is it all resting in him and the fact that he rose from the dead and that you will rise also from the dead? He's a liberator. The story's not over, and I told you the last few verses are going to be the ones that really give us the reason why God put this very strange chapter in here, full of sin, full of injustice, and yet God is going to work it out for good. Now it came to pass at that time for giving birth and that behold, twins were in her womb. So it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly and she said, how did you break through? This breach will be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Perez. It's that Perez. Perez is in the genealogy of Joseph. If you go to Matthew and you read through that text, you read through that scripture, that's in here. It's in there. Um. The whole point of this chapter is to show that the Messiah is going to come through Judah, through Tamar, through Perez. That's interesting to me and very encouraging to me as we see one of the most dysfunctional families we've ever read about, this family of Jacob, the deceiver, with four different wives, with kids from all four wives that are all fighting and infighting and, and all this craziness is going on. I don't know what kind of family life you came 
through or have or had. But you look at these people and you realize if God can use these people in his perfect plan, God can certainly use me. Tamar had no hope. She had to take matters into her own hands. I mean, this is not a story you tell anybody. I, I lost my first husband. God killed him. Then I got my second husband who didn't do what he was supposed to do, and God killed him. Then I didn't get my third husband, so I had to pretend to be a prostitute so that my father-in-law would impregnate me so that I could finally have an heir. Who, can, who tells that story out loud, you know? And yet God does. And yet God saw fit to write an entire chapter right here to put Perez in the genealogy of Jesus. He's, Jesus isn't coming through Joseph. Doesn't that make sense? Jesus should come through Joseph. Joseph is the righteous one. Joseph is the good one. Joseph, no. Jesus is going to come through Judah. It's amazing. He comes through one of the worst stories. Jesus comes out of that. What Satan intended for evil, what Satan intended to be destructive, this poor woman, this whole family, God brings an heir. Not the heir, not her heir, but the great-grandfather several times over of Jesus. Now, in Joseph's line here, that's incredible. I, I, I want to read something to you. And it's out of Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. When you read Matthew's genealogy, uh, there's some names here. Um, you've got Leah, first of all, the unloved wife of Jacob. She's the one that has Judah, right? Then you've got this Tamar being born another woman in the lineage of Jesus. Later on, you're going to have Rahab mentioned right after. You know who Rahab was? Rahab was another harlot at Jericho who did what she needed to do to trust in the living God, even in her current condition as a harlot, and God honored that. And Jesus comes through not only Leah, not only Tamar, but also Rahab. And then after that, Ruth, who's not even Jewish, she's a Moabitess, and then finally, the last woman mentioned is Bathsheba. I'm saying all these women had some, a checkered background would, would say, that, <laughs> to say the least. And yet God saw fit to put Leah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, all in the lineage of Jesus. All of these things. All these women with their crazy backgrounds, with their horrible stories, and brought it out for good and, and, and become one of the grandmothers. Each one of these ladies is a grandmother, and I'm not going to go through which great-grandma she is, but every one of them is a grandmother of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world. They thought their lives were ruined. They thought their lives were hopeless. They thought their lives were whatever. But God uses every one of these things. All of these women suffered at the hands of the culture. And yet God used it. It's almost as if God was looking for the afflicted, for the abandoned, for the forgotten, for the abused, and put them in his Messiah's plan 
for the very purpose that no one could ever say, well, Jesus came through a super pure line of people and therefore you need to be super pure too. Not the case. Puts these names in here. You know he doesn't mention any of the other women in the genealogies? Only these women with their checkered backgrounds? To make sure that everybody understood, my Messiah, my son is going to come through this line of imperfect people. Because I want to use imperfect people. I want to use people that have checkered backgrounds that come and trust in me. God wants to use all of us. Every one of us. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how much sin you have in your history. God wants to use you. Will use you. Will do a marvelous, amazing works through you if you let him. Encourage you to let him. Romans chapter 12, verse 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My background, your background, my history, your history, that's all it is. Overcome. God has called us to be overcomers, and we overcome whatever has happened in your background. I don't know what has ever happened to you, ladies, at the hands of men. There's a lot of abuse out there. There's a lot of things that are hidden. There's a lot of things that are, I don't know, make you feel unloved, unwanted, unworthy, that's past. You've come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ now, and he has made you whole. He has washed away that past. He has washed away that history. He's washed away all those things, whatever happened to you. It no longer matters. Only what matters is what lies in front of you and how you walk with him, and you will overcome all that evil by doing good by good, trusting in him, walking with him, worshiping him, giving him your whole life. None of that has a hold of you anymore. None of that history. It's only what lies ahead. The last scripture I wanted to share with you is out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 1, and this is about being raised. If then you were raised with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. We shared last week a little bit about being mere men. God doesn't expect us to be mere men or mere women, but when he says men, he means mankind. He doesn't want us to be mere. He wants us, if you have been saved, if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation and you're a born-again believer, he wants you to not be that carnal person anymore, thinking of your history, bound by your past, whatever abuses happened to you, whatever afflictions you had to endure, he wants you to look forward to seek the things which are above now. No matter what your past is, look forward to what God has for you. Whatever Satan means for evil in your life, God's going to work it out for good. To trust in him, to give you a hope, to be an overcomer. Nothing is binding you anymore in Jesus You've been set free. All the chains have been broken. You're completely set free. The only thing that binds you now is your willingness to be bound. But you are free, and you're free indeed in Christ. I encourage you to walk with him, to love him, to worship him. The disciples didn't believe the women when they came and said he was risen from the dead. All those guys, none of them. They walked with Jesus for three and a half years, ministered with him, filled with the Holy Spirit, able to do those amazing things. And the women came and told them the truth, and they didn't believe it. It took extra convincing for those guys to come on board. And they did. I don't want to beat us guys up too much tonight. 
But ladies, you have a special place. You have a special place in God's heart. The Savior came through a woman. The Savior came through Eve, came through Tamar, came through Rahab, came through Ruth, came through Bathsheba, came through the unloved, the abused, the afflicted, the abandoned. The Messiah came through those women. They're identified now not by their abuse or their afflictions or their abandonment. They're identified now as great-grandmothers and great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Let God do that with you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this crazy chapter, Lord. Thank you for not excluding it. If I was a writer, I'd have excluded it because it's too strange and too inappropriate for church. And how do you talk about this in front of mixed company? But not you, God. You are raw. You love the truth. You love us where we are. You want to save us from where we are to where you want us to be. You transform us and bring us to that place to be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. We're so thankful that you're not afraid to go way back and way down to pull us way up. So we thank you for that tonight. And God, I pray that we're encouraged. I pray that we'd hold on to this encouragement and that we'd walk in this newness of life that as you were raised from the dead, we would rise from our death, rise from that past and walk with you now forward in all the good works you've prepared for us, that we'd fulfill them, that we'd do them, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.